World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Each year, millions of monarch butterflies make an astonishing migration from Canada to a remote corner of Mexico, and no one was more excited to greet them than Homero Gomez. We look back on the life of a logger-turned-activist. And the coyote is thought of as America's predator of the prairie, or maybe as a figure of fun in cartoons. But ecological pressures are driving them into cities across the country, and inevitably, that makes for conflict with humans. First up, though. Few Irish leaders have gained the global recognition of the current Prime Minister, or Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar. The son of an Indian immigrant, he's Ireland's first openly gay leader. And its youngest. He first took office three years ago at the age of 38. And I think if my election as leader of Fine Gael today has shown anything, it is that prejudice has no hold in this republic. He's overseen the abolition of abortion laws and stood up to the British over Brexit. The UK is only one country. And we have a population and a market of 450 million people. If these were two teams up against each other playing football, who do you think has the stronger team? But despite being well-liked abroad, at home there's discontent over soaring housing costs and a faltering health service. Tomorrow, there's a general election. And if the polls are to be believed, Mr. Varadkar faces the sack. We're in the grips of a housing crisis. It's absolutely chronic out there. It's heartbreaking out there. And uh, something has to be done, something radical has to be done, and I firmly believe that we are the people to do that. And, to widespread surprise, the party that looks to gain the most is the one closely associated with the violence that gripped Ireland in the late 20th century, Sinn Féin, led by Mary Lou MacDonald. The latest poll from the Irish Times showed that Sinn Féin, which is a left-leaning Republican party in the Irish context, is pro-Irish unity. It was, until recently, the political wing of the IRA in Northern Ireland and in the South, is now in the poll position with 25% of the popular vote, which is its highest ever support in Southern Ireland, south of the border. Ed O'Loughlin writes about Ireland for The Economist. The other two centre-right parties, which have very little to choose between them in terms of ideology, they have alternated power in the south of Ireland since the creation of the southern state. They've always been the lead party, one or the other. Now they are in second and third place. Fianna Fáil, traditionally seen as the main party of government, is in second place. They've been in opposition nominally for the last few years. And Fine Gael, which is currently in power, the party of Leo Varadkar, they have now slumped to third place, which is the first time in their history that they've been that far down. And, and why is it that it that has seemingly gone so wrong for Mr. Varadkar? 
Finnegale's campaign has been based on the aspect of Mr. Varadkar's career, which has made him internationally prominent, which is his dealing with the Brexit standoff with the UK and rallying support in the EU and the US to Ireland's position, which is that the Dublin government does not want to see any return to a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. He's done very well in that. But unfortunately for him, as often happens, the domestic situation has not been as favourable to him as his international posture. The government has been in power for nine years now. It's been implementing broadly a policy of austerity, which carries on from the crash in 2008. And in particular, there have been issues around healthcare and housing. It's been perceived as not having done anything to address a, a housing crisis, and in particular a rental crisis, which has left Dublin and Ireland with uh, some of the highest rents on the planet. People can't afford those rents. Young people in particular have become very disillusioned and very angry. I think it's a trend everywhere in the Western world, but it's become particularly heightened here. And they're looking for an alternative party to go to. There is no strong established centre-left party in Ireland. So people looking for an alternative have hit upon Sinn Féin as the only other large nationally organised party that's offering a centre-left soft social democratic agenda. But, but Sinn Féin is, is a party with some pretty strong associations to, to past violence in Ireland. I mean, what, what, what is the party like at the moment, ideologically? Well, you have to differentiate, for a start, between Sinn Féin in the north and Sinn Féin in the south, which is something that Sinn Féin itself doesn't like to do because its unique um, selling point is that it's an all-Ireland party. It supports Irish unity. They don't like to see the party split in two. But, in fact, there are differences between north and south. Obviously, they've been separate states for a century now. In the South, which is where this election is taking place, the party has sought to move away from its traditional role as the political wing of the IRA. The Troubles, of course, effectively ended more than 20 years ago. In the South, in particular, there's been a move away from the kind of the IRA era, Sinn Féin. Most of, in fact, all of the present leadership in the South uh, are too young to have anything to do with the struggles or to have been active in Sinn Féin uh, during the Troubles. Mary Lou MacDonald is from Dublin. She's the current leader. There is no value in refighting the battles of the past. The war is long over. There is no value either in engaging in a main game. She is, again, too young to have been personally involved. She does have quite strong All-Ireland Republican credentials, which have got her in trouble once or twice. But broadly speaking, she is not somebody who has any IRA baggage which can be thrown against her personally. And what about the actual route to power for, for Sinn Féin, though? If, if things are so divided in the polls, this could end up uh, looking like a minority government scenario. Do you think Mary Lou MacDonald could, could lead that minority government? Well, most uh, of the commentators here are saying that that seems unlikely, but nobody really knows what will happen. Both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have sworn not to go into government with Sinn Féin, but in Ireland, as elsewhere, these kind of promises tend to evaporate in the face of cold, hard arithmetic. If the two other parties continue to slide in the polls, Sinn Féin hold their vote or build on it, there are a number, quite a large number of other smaller left-wing parties and the Green Party, which is likely to do well in this election, whom, if the arithmetic was right, might actually be able to form some kind of broad left coalition. And that would be truly groundbreaking in Ireland because there's never been a left-led or even centre-left-led government in the history of the state. And if the arithmetic goes that way, how do you think Sinn Féin being in power in the South and certainly in a power-sharing agreement in the North would, would affect relations, for instance, with Britain? Well, Sinn Féin's policy 
in his manifesto is it wants a border poll right away on Irish reunification. In practice, even if Sinn Féin were leading a government in the South and were leading the government in the North, neither of which has come to pass at this point, it is not in a position to demand a border poll. That's not in its gift. That's up to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, who would only call a border poll if they were satisfied that there would be a majority for it in Northern Ireland and presumably in Southern Ireland as well. That is by no means the case right now. So I think Sinn Féin has to ask for Irish unity in the same way as it has a policy of restoring the use of Gaelic as the principal language, North and South. That's not going to happen either, but there are pieties that must be observed. And do you think this sort of surprise rise of Sinn Féin in this election is an indication that it will be a political force for the future more generally? I think it looks very likely. One aspect of this surge is... For quite some time, there's been a lot of questioning as to why Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil exist. They both claim to be descendants from the side that wouldn't accept compromise over partition in 1922. Fianna Fáil is ageing, Sinn Féin is not. Fianna Fáil is resistant to coalition with Sinn Féin because they're afraid that Sinn Féin would eat them under such a scenario that people would say, well, why do we need two Republican uh, parties Whatever happens in this election, it looks like they might be able to build on that. It's highly unlikely that they're going away, uh, even if they don't get into government this time. Ed, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Last year, 34,582 people were murdered in Mexico. That's the highest rate since 1997, the first year for which there's an official record. It's the equivalent of 95 murders every day. There are so many that each case draws little public interest. But two deaths this year in one of the poorest parts of the country have sparked international attention. The migration of monarch butterflies is one of the great wonders of the natural world. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. They fly 4,500 kilometers from eastern Canada right down to Mexico. And they do this every year. They start in late August and make their way down to arrive in Mexico at the very beginning of November. There are millions of these butterflies and the color is bright orange, tending to yellow. But suddenly there they are coming in clouds over the western part of Mexico. The man who probably welcomed them most eagerly to Michoacán and to a little place called El Rosario in the the middle of Michoacán was Homero Gómez. He was the manager of the El Rosario Butterfly Sanctuary and he would watch for these butterflies for days before. He was an intrepid tweeter, so he would send out to all his followers pictures of him, pictures of the sky and the trees, film of it, just waiting for that first little wing to come flickering across. And then picture after picture would come, and film after film of him standing in forest clearings with his arms out, welcoming the butterflies, and they would land on him, they would land on his head and his nose and his shoulders. And flock to the trees, so many of them, that the 
branches were actually weighed down and the leaves would look orange with them. The sanctuary was founded about two decades ago. There had been a study of where the monarch butterfly spent the winter. It's such a remote part of Mexico that no one was quite sure where it was exactly. Then when it was discovered, there was a general feeling that the habitat ought to be preserved. And there was very little else for people round about El Rosario to do. They were just loggers. They were all taking wood out of the forest. That was how they made their livelihood. And when the idea was first mooted, it was in fact Homero Gomez who made sure that the butterfly reserve took off that it was something the local people would want. And he managed to persuade them that attracting tourists in to look at the butterflies was actually going to be a better source of income than cutting down the trees. He was brought up in a family of 10 children. His parents were timber merchants. And although he trained to be an agronomist, he ended up as a logger himself. It was what everybody did. It's a peasant society. And he couldn't particularly think of any other way of making a living than the traditional one. On the other hand, like all the local people, he was also enchanted by the butterflies when they turned up every year, because it was more or less on the Day of the Dead. And the local legends had it that these were the souls of local people returning home. They even had in their wings the color of marigolds, and marigolds in Mexico are the flower of the dead. So there was already a great love of the butterflies that went alongside the need to cut down their trees. And at some point, his love of the butterflies seemed to overwhelm his need to cut down trees. Once he had persuaded the other peasants on this communal land, there were 260 other people he had to persuade. They formed a pretty good team. They managed to plant between them, with the help of some volunteers, a million new trees on the reserve and reforested about 150 hectares. And so the whole thing prospered. But while there were thousands of tourists thoroughly enjoying the reserve, walking among the clouds of butterflies. There were, at the same time, some very dangerous enemies lying in wait for Homero Gomez and his helpers. And these were the illegal loggers, who, despite the fact that logging had been banned in the sanctuary for some time by the national government, still managed to come in It was still very lucrative to take the trees out. There are some quite valuable hardwoods that grow in among the pine trees, the special pine trees that the monarch butterflies love. So these were the new enemies. They were armed. He had to try and keep a constant watch on them, so he organized patrols that would go out through the woods constantly at night, keeping a watch out for intruders in case they were there. But they were not armed, these patrols. They were just doing what they could to protect the habitat. For some time, he'd been receiving death threats. There had been various tense standoffs with the illegal loggers. So there was not a great deal of surprise when he went missing. 
He had been to the local town of Acampo to a patronal festival, and he didn't come back. Some few days afterwards, his body was found floating in a sort of farm reservoir. And it seemed at first that it was just a death by drowning, and that was what the authorities said, but people were rather suspicious that it could possibly be. And a better autopsy revealed that he'd had a blow to the head. And only a few days after his body was found, the body of one of the tour guides, Raul Hernandez, was also found. So within two weeks, the El Rosario Reserve had lost its manager and one of its best tour guides. And it was an enormous blow, of course, to everyone who worked there. The future of the reserve is probably safe, however, because it has become so famous in the world and because the circumstances of the deaths of these two men were sufficiently shocking that they've drawn the world's attention to it. But these two deaths also lie within a far wider and sadder picture, which is that the murder rate in Mexico has become so extraordinary. In fact, these are just two more deaths among the tally of 1,600 murders in Michoacán, 35,000 murders in Mexico as a whole in a little more than a year. One of the things that most drew me to write this obituary was the contrast between the fragility and beauty of the butterflies which had so attracted Homero Gomez and the apparent horror and violence of the way he died. Anne Rowe on Homero Gomez, who's died aged 50. Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. The wily e. Coyote is a popular figure in the American imagination. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Wile E. Coyote. Genius. As with the Warner Brothers character, they're known as the ultimate tricksters. So let's get down to cases. You are a rabbit, and I am going to eat you for supper. Now, don't try to get away. But they're also an increasingly common part of urban American life. Sometimes that brings danger. Last month, a five-year-old boy was attacked by a coyote in the city of Chicago. So I first heard about the coyote attack in an email from the principal of the school that my boys attend, uh, just around the corner from my house. Adam Roberts is our Midwest correspondent. 
and the email said the school was on lockdown because of an attack in the neighbourhood and that we shouldn't be worried if we heard that there were helicopters swooping over our houses and if we saw police and other armed people out in the park because they were hunting a coyote. And, and the fear was that after several sightings of the coyote in the neighbourhood, that more people would be attacked. Such incidents are thankfully unusual, but coyote sightings across America have become routine. For a long time, if you were west of the Mississippi, coyote were very, very normal presence, even in the cities. But what's happened in the past 30 or 40 years is the coyote have spread east. So whereas you would never have seen a coyote in downtown Chicago or downtown New York City 40 or 50 years ago, they've now basically become as common there as they would be in the west of the country. So is it that the population is growing or that they're growing more bold or just that they're uh, exploring more of their range? Yeah, so I interviewed Stan Gert. He's a professor of wildlife ecology at Ohio State University. And he's been gripped by the phenomenon of urban coyote for years. For example, Chicago, we began our study almost 20 years ago because of the appearance of coyotes in areas that they had never been seen before. And he now estimates that conservatively there are between two and 4,000 coyote in Chicago alone, and he has an explanation for why the population has grown so much. Partially explains. I mean, the, the eastern yeah. expansion was largely due to um, the removal of wolves and the uh, removal of a lot of the eastern deciduous forest for farmland. The forests so, have disappeared, uh, the wolves that used to hunt coyote have disappeared, and so the coyote are flourishing in the rural areas and they need territory, and that means the cities. So it's just essentially that nothing is hunting them and so they're proliferating. Well, some people do keep hunting coyotes. 400,000 were killed in a typical year, which is a measure of how many there are still around the country. But they used to be hunted and trapped in far greater numbers. So most of the North American furs are actually sold overseas. But Hmm. the European Union has cut back quite a bit in terms of acquiring North American furs. And uh, These days, far fewer people are wearing fur. It's not as fashionable, it's not seen as acceptable. Demand for the fur has dropped steadily. And with that, the population in the rural areas has flourished, and then they're pouring into the cities. Where now we're hearing about attacks on people. Is, is that becoming more common too? Attacks on people are still very rare. And coyote, although they're fairly large animals, they can look like a small wolf. They're actually shy. They hide away from humans most of the time. Much more common for people to be killed by dogs. Around 50 people are killed in America every year because of dogs. And deer. Deer kill a lot more people in America because they cause traffic accidents that kill around 200 people a year. So coyote are actually not particularly dangerous animals at all. So for my part, I mean, we see a lot of foxes in London, which, you know, surprises visitors to the city. But, you know, South Londoners in particular are used to it. And I suppose as a phenomenon, it's not so different. And and perhaps the reasons for it not so different. I think this is absolutely a phenomenon that we're seeing all over the world of once exotic wildlife that were kept at a distance coming into our cities. Sometimes they're pushed in, like with the coyote, because their populations are actually flourishing outside in the rural areas. Quite often, they're drawn in because the cities are quite attractive places for those animals. We provide plenty of food, shelter, opportunities for them to hunt. You know, when I was living in India, there were often stories about leopards coming into Mumbai or coming to Bangalore, and they would creep into the cities and interact with humans, maybe pounce and and eat a couple of pet dogs. It's the same with bears in Canada, wolves in Europe, dingoes in Australia. We're seeing more and more interaction of wildlife and humans in urban settings. 
and this will presumably keep growing as our cities grow, but also as they become more appealing for those animals, with parks, with plenty of food. Those are good places for the animals often to hang out. Well, Adam, stay safe out there. It's a dangerous city, but I'll try. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.